From the Carnegie Tsinghua Center in Beijing, China, this is the China in the World podcast, hosted by Paul Hanley. Welcome back to China and the World podcast. We're pleased this morning to have with us Jake Sullivan, who's visiting from the United States, visiting us here at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center in Beijing. You'd be hard pressed, in my opinion, to find somebody more influential in the democratic foreign policy community. In the Obama administration, Jake had significant influence uh, on President Obama's foreign policy and was Hillary Clinton's uh, point person during the presidential campaign on foreign policy. He served in the Obama administration early on as director of policy planning, uh, and was a close advisor to sec- then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton as her deputy chief of staff. Uh, in the second term, uh, he moved over to the White House, where Jake was deputy assistant to the president and national security advisor for Joe Biden. Uh, he was involved in uh, many of the、uh, most important and key foreign policy initiatives of the Obama. Administration, including、uh, with the president of the Carnegie Endowment, Bill Burns, then Deputy Secretary of State, leading the secret negotiations with Iran that ultimately led to the Iran nuclear agreement. We're very lucky to have Jake at the Carnegie Endowment now as a senior fellow in the Geoeconomics and Strategy Program. This is a new program that is looking at the intersection of national economic policy and foreign policy. And addresses what Jake has identified as a disconnect in U.S. grand strategy, in terms of linking our foreign policy with our national economic interests. Jake, thanks for joining China the World podcast. Thanks for having me, Jake. My first question is why this new program、uh, at the Carnegie Endowment? Why this geoeconomics and strategy program? What is it that you?、Uh, what is it that you and Bill, Bill Burns, saw as a gap? In terms of our foreign policy and our national economic interests, well, there are two basic realities out there today、uh, that motivated Bill and myself and and my colleagues in the program, including Salman Ahmed、um, and others, to、uh, launch this new geoeconomics and strategy program. The first fact is a foreign policy fact, and it's that power in the world is increasingly being measured and exercised in economic terms. And other significant countries in the world, including China,、mm-hmm. see economic power as a core part of their statecraft, as、mm-hmm. a core part of their national security strategy. And the question for the United States is: What could we be doing differently to advance our national security objectives through the use of economic influence and economic tools? The second fact, and this is something that I felt both in government, but even more acutely working on the campaign for Hillary Clinton, is that. The core challenge facing the United States and other advanced economies is how we strengthen and sustain a vital、uh, the vitality of the middle class,、mm-hmm. and there has been a gap, in my view, between the way that we think about our foreign policy priorities、mm-hmm. and the things we do abroad, and delivering a stronger, healthier middle class at home. And so, the second question we'll be looking at is how can we.、Uh, Take steps in terms of our foreign policy and national security strategy that puts 
the middle class at the center of our decision making, and that's a major project we're looking at over the course of this year. You know, if you if you consider your program and you look and you bring uh, the discussion here to Asia, one of the examples you've given uh, is the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP, um, which during the campaign, pre- uh, then candidate Donald Trump said if he was elected, he would pull out, which he had, he did in his first week in office. In the discussion of TPP in the United States, is this an example of how we didn't put forward an effort that was important for strategy and connect it with why it was important in terms of our domestic economic programs and and jobs to Americans? I think the TPP issue, and both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump came out against TPP during during the campaign, uh, is an example of where the strategic community, the American strategic community, foreign policy experts, almost across the board, Democrats Mm -hmm. and Republicans said, this is a good thing. This is, in fact, an essential thing for American leadership in Asia. And I certainly agree that a multilateral trade agreement that sets new rules of the road for the Asia Pacific and ultimately sets the groundwork for new rules of the road globally Mm -hmm. um, is an essential part of American strategy. But the specific terms of TPP, um, I think, uh, were not presented to the American people in a way that gave them confidence Mm -hmm. that at their core, they were going to improve wages, increase jobs, and deliver benefits for the middle class. Now, we could have a debate about whether that's true or not Mm -hmm. true, but the fact is that I think we in the strategic community and the national security community need to do a better job of both understanding the elements of our international economic policy and then connecting that to a larger narrative about how, at the end of the day, uh, it places priority on a healthier more vibrant middle class in the United States. I want to talk to you about um, Asia, but before I do that, you know, President Trump during the campaign uh, expressed very different views about America's role in the world, U.S. foreign policy, um, very different from previous approaches to foreign policy, both Democrat and Republican, uh, where we had a more traditional role of American leadership. Just want to get your sense on, you know, do you think, and we're seeing now President Trump carry out many of the things that he talked about in terms of the promises on how he would change America's approach to the world. Um, one, is he on to something? Is, you know, is, is there something that we need to consider going forward, whether he's president or not, in terms of adjusting our approach to these issues? Um and even when he's not president, if we have a more traditional candidate come back as president, will the landscape change on these issues? Are we, will we ever go back to normal? Or are the kind of issues that he's put forward that we're now considering, is that going to change the way we look at American leadership in the world today? I think Donald Trump has, in a way, done a service uh, for the foreign policy community in both the Democratic and Republican parties. He's forced us to ask very basic questions about Mm -hmm. why we do what we do in the world and what is working and what is not working in terms of American leadership. And I think we would be remiss if we simply rejected out of hand every question he put on the table and said, it's all working perfectly. We don't have to to worry. We don't have to change anything. In fact, I think the way that he uh, critiqued American leadership and American foreign policy and our immediate response was kind of to go into a defensive crouch 
yeah. uh, just went to show that we haven't done the kind of fresh thinking and re-examination of some yeah. of the assumptions that have that have underlied our approach uh, in the Obama administration, the Bush administration, the Clinton administration. So I do think we need to make adjustments. But mm-hmm. fundamentally, I think Donald Trump's prescriptions are wrong. For right. example, he has questioned the value of alliances. And I mm-hmm. think at the end of the day, America's alliances around the world are one of our great strategic assets. He has questioned whether we should care at all about the promotion of values overseas, values of democracy and human rights. And I think if the United States sets values aside entirely and becomes just another normal country out there, our ability to influence the rest of the world or to inspire people elsewhere in the world uh, will come at a cost to our security and our prosperity. Uh, He has rejected the idea that there should be multilateral solutions to anything. He wants all bilateral transactionalism. And most of the great challenges we face today, whether it's climate change or nuclear proliferation or uh, the potential for a future global economic crisis, they require collective action by multiple countries all working together. And that collective action requires a leader, requires someone to step up and mobilize cooperation. And the United States is the only country capable of doing that. That's in our interest and it's in everybody else's interest. So on these core principles, I think Donald Trump is wrong mm-hmm. and uh, the bipartisan consensus is right. But how we actually practice that mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. prioritize that in the world, that's where we need to look to make some adjustments. And that's specifically uh, many of the issues that your geoeconomics and strategy exactly. will be I mean, at. at the end of the day, I think that his diagnosis that the conversations around the table in the Situation Room and in the halls of our major foreign policy and national security agencies have gotten a bit adrift of the core question of what it's going to take to uh, protect and enhance America's most vital asset, which is a strong middle class, Mm -hmm. um, that that diagnosis is a fair diagnosis Mm -hmm. and that we need to think about what should we be doing differently. Mm -hmm. But we need to do that while maintaining a basic foundation of our alliances, our friendships, and our leadership role in the world, mm-hmm. and not give those things up. You know, a lot of people, as 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 President Trump, you know, is retreating in a number of areas of global leadership for the United States, whether it's climate change or the Iran nuclear agreement, which you were a part of, um, or the the global trading and economic system. A lot of people are talking about China is now stepping up to fill that void. Um, you know, I'm skeptical, number one, uh, that China will be able to fill that void or wants to fill that void. You've been out here now for a couple of days. How do you see that dynamic? Well, I share your skepticism. I mean, at the end of the day, it takes a unique actor to play the role of the mobilizer, the catalyst for international cooperation on these big issues. Mm-hmm. It takes an enormous amount of effort. Uh, it takes cajoling and browbeating and persuading countries to sign up to make commitments to help solve these big global problems. The United States has filled that role for a while. Uh, I think it will continue to do so because there isn't anyone else, China included, who has either the wherewithal or the willingness to Mm -hmm. do it. And so what I fear is that if we continue down the road that President Trump has put us on, we're just going to end up with drift and decay. We're not going to end up with a replacement mm-hmm. leader. Mm-hmm. In your experience in the Obama administration and, and what we've seen in the first year of the Trump administration, where is it that you see China stepping up in terms of playing a larger global role? And how is their calculus in wanting to do that or 
willing to do that different than the way the U.S. approaches, approaches global leadership in the past? I think anytime anything happens anywhere in the world, uh, it is the instinct of Americans to say, how do we help solve that problem? Um, and how do we solve it in a way that works for us, but also kind of works for everybody else? A real positive sum mindset. That's mm. just kind of mm. part of the American instinct. I would say it's part of the American character generally, and it's mm -hmm. part of the American foreign policy character as well. Mm -hmm. I don't see China as having reached a point where it proceeds any in any way like that. They continue to focus on how to protect Chinese interests, yeah. uh, both in the region and globally. So mm -hmm. to the extent that they are, quote unquote, stepping up on big issues, it's where they mm -hmm. see their interests implicated and where they feel they need to take steps in order to protect those interests, whether that's economic interests uh, or the interest of the security of their personnel in places like mm -hmm. Yemen or, or mm -hmm. Uh, uh, South Sudan or, or what have you. Um, but it, I think climate change could be the best example. I mean, and and at, with respect to climate, right, yeah. why is China doing what China's doing you to a large the, extent? You look at the air here exactly. in China, the right. polluted rivers and like. So it would take a real significant shift for China to actually inhabit the personality or the purpose of a global leader. And I just don't see that shift happening anytime soon. Now, here in the Asia-Pacific, I think China believes that it has both the right uh, and the opportunity to take on a much more significant role, and that it would prefer to see the United States play a role that is somewhat diminished from the role the United States has traditionally played. Uh, but there, I think what the U.S. and China need to do is sit down and have a structured strategic conversation about how we arrive at terms of coexistence in this region uh, so that it works for them, it works for us, and it works for everybody else. Let's talk for a, a few minutes about President Trump's approach to Asia. We're coming up on the end of his first year in office, and I'm interested to hear from you uh, your views on where President Trump has shifted away from previous approaches, whether that was in the Obama or Bush administration, uh, and, 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 and where he's have maintaining a consistent approach from previous administrations. In terms of the consistency, it seems alliances is something that he's put forward as important for America's approach in the world. Do you see consistency there in his approach with alliances? To a much greater extent in Asia than in Europe. And that's because nothing focuses the mind quite like North Korea marching towards a nuclear mm. ICBM capability. I think that's what's made him believe he's got to invest in Japan and, and South Korea in particular. Um, I think it's been a little scratchier in his relationship with Australia, uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, going back to the phone call he had with Malcolm Turnbull. But basically, the story on alliances in Asia is more one of continuity than change. And from that standpoint, on his recent trip out here, his first stop was Tokyo. Right. Second stop was Korea. Yeah. And then he came to China. And I, I agree with you. I think that made a lot of sense. And put our China policy in a, in, a, in, a, in a broader Asia context, which was important. Yeah. I do worry, though, that he uh, doesn't think the same way about how these alliances form the foundation for a broader regional strategy the way mm -hmm. the previous presidents have, that he sees them mainly through the prism of North Korea right now mm -hmm. and not as much through the prism of uh, an integrated regional strategy. But that may change over time. We'll mm -hmm. have to wait and see. Um, where mm -hmm. I think that he has been 
quite different from previous American presidents is uh, in his approach to issues like values, democracy, and human mm-hmm. rights. Uh, mm-hmm. He's demonstrated in Asia that his favorite people are the ones who are the most autocratic mm-hmm. uh, and that he's simply not going to raise or press uh, the values question with any of the leaders in this region. I think he's also been significantly different in terms of his rejection of multilateralism. He views multilateral arrangements as fundamentally constraining of American sovereignty. So he walked away from TPP. He has put very little focus or emphasis on the institutional architecture of the region, the East Asia Summit or Mm -hmm. APEC or ASEAN. Um, And he thinks about everything in bilateral and transactional Mm -hmm. terms. And I think that will come at a cost because... You know, as you were just saying, a good China policy, at the end of the day, is a good Asia policy. And a good right. Asia policy is a policy that involves thinking about our relationships in this region, not as one-offs, but as part of an integrated whole. Yeah. And uh, I hope over time that the people around Trump can convince him that looking purely through the bilateral and transactional lens will ultimately come at a cost to America's role in this region. And, and, you know, you saw that play out in practice on the second half of his trip to the region, where the first half was approaching Japan and Korea and talking about the importance of the alliances and the importance, frankly, of the China relationship with the China stop. But then he seemed to really deviate uh, when he went to APEC uh, and he went on to the Philippines for the U.S. ASEAN summit and... He almost got to the East Asia Summit. He didn't quite get there at the end of the day. But that's where, in my mind, you see a real departure uh, from the traditional approach. And uh, I worry about that as well in that it doesn't send a message, a reassuring message of America's credible commitment to the region. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and if you think back to the previous two administrations, a Republican and a Democratic administration, Uh, We all worked hard to build a foundation uh, that said there's going to be some features to American leadership. One is that we are going to stand for a set of universal values, and we're going to call out leaders like Duterte in the Philippines uh, who are in severe breach of those values. Two is we are going to invest in the institutions of this region because we think that that is the way that you're going to promote an open and fair trading system, the way you're going to promote collective problem solving for these challenges that no one country can solve on their own. And it's going to be the way that we encourage China to become a more responsible player and to rise into a rules-based system that that works for everyone. Um, And I think walking away from that or not seeing the value in that, um, you know, maybe the cost isn't present, you know, when he got on the plane to fly home, but that cost will become apparent over time. They put forward this concept the Trump administration did during the trip of this Indo-Pacific strategy. Um, And folks out here in the uh, Asia-Pacific, especially here in China, are trying to better understand what this is beyond just a a sort of a bumper sticker. Um, I was somewhat pleased at hearing the administration use Indo-Pacific only because, as you said, I share your concern that Trump looks at the Asia-Pacific and and, and, and thinks China. Uh, and then beyond that, when he thinks China, he thinks North Korea. Right, right. And that's not, in my mind, a credible approach to the region. It's not good for American interests. So I was pleased on one hand to see, okay, now they're looking at the region from a broader standpoint in a broader context. But beyond that, I didn't really see anything. And I wonder if you had a sense of 
where this might go in the Trump administration and how do they fill this 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 bumper sticker out, put meat on the bones of this? Well, my assessment is that they've essentially fashioned this phrase uh, um, for purposes of giving the trip some kind of overall tagline. Mm-hmm. And if you press Donald Trump on what does the Indo-Pacific mean? He might not even have been aware that Indo-Pacific was mm. <laughs> meant to be more the, of his, the defining uh, national trip. security. This is more team his team. But but mm-hmm. look, I think they could end up putting it into practice yeah. because the fundamental insight of the phrase Indo-Pacific uh, is is an insight that I think is a valuable one, mm-hmm. which is we have to think about the expanding geography of this region to include the Indian subcontinent. That India is an active player in the affairs of. East Asia and the Asia Pacific. Uh, and so from my perspective, there's some value in it. Um, but to actually see it be converted from a bumper sticker to an actual strategy will require a lot more work than we've seen so far. You could you can see a security component to this. I know this was an idea that uh, you know came to the Bush administration in 2006 uh, from the Japanese, from Abe himself. Uh, the Pentagon liked certain elements of it in terms of security cooperation with partners in right. the region. Um, but the issue that you raised about Trump's uh, departure from the values piece, um, that seems to me would be a huge gap in, uh, in the Indo-Pacific strategy. And then, Jake, how does the administration put forward a credible trade and economic component of this Indo-Pacific strategy if all they're putting on the table is bilateral trade agreements. That's right. I mean, if you thought about those three pillars, uh, the the pillar of sort of democracy, human rights, shared values, you'd see an alignment among India, Australia, Japan, the United States, p- potentially some other actors in the region as well. Uh, if you look at the economic dimension, you could see a multilateral effort to raise the rules of the game, to, to lift the standards in the region. Uh, And on both of those, there doesn't seem to be any instinct on the part of the president and any policy being put forward by the people around him that would really give content to the strategy. On the security part, starting in the Bush administration and then picking up in the Obama administration where we had the trilateral dialogue among India, Japan, and the United States, I think there is actually now uh, a richer reservoir of cooperation. The U.S. and India are collaborating uh, on security on a security basis to a greater degree. Obviously, the U.S.-Japan alliance is is very firm and trying to now integrate some of the exercises and other potential common security activities is something you could see the Trump administration take forward. But you, if you're a, a three-legged stool that where two of the legs aren't really yet right. <laughs> put up underneath the table part of it, that's just going to fall over. So in order for this to work, the Trump administration is going to have to have a more comprehensive approach than what we've seen so far. Jake, let's talk about uh, North Korea. Um, the when you, when you hear what the administration is talking about with regard to North Korea, including General McMaster, the National Security Advisor, you could come to the conclusion that this administration is laying out a case for war. Um, you could also, however, look at this and say, well, if the Trump, negoti- if Trump team wants to get to the table and negotiate with the North Koreans and be able to have leverage to make progress, they need to convince the North Koreans 
that they have military options that they're willing to use. Which is this? Are they really considering military options or is this part of an effort psychological operations campaign to convince North Korea and China that they have military options and they're willing to use them? Well, as you and I both know from having served in government, if you're not actually in the room, you're basically speculating. And so I'm only speculating, but I'm speculating based on a now pretty significant body of statements by this administration and arguments and the unfolding of a logic around the North Korea nuclear issue that all, in my view, points in the direction of them being serious about considering the military option, that this is not just a bad cop routine. It's not just raising the specter of military force as a means of coercive diplomacy, but that they actually are contemplating the use of military action to respond to North Korea's advances. And the two things that have stood out to me in that regard are, one, the argument that they are making, both publicly and privately, that North Korea cannot be deterred in a traditional way, and therefore we can't Uh, have a strategy that just tries to contain and deter them, uh, which points in the direction of military action. And the second is that they believe that they have viable military options that could manage the escalation risk. And when you put those two together, uh, that suggests that there is at least uh, a group of people inside the administration who are making the case that if it comes to it, uh, war might be Uh, an acceptable option with respect to North Korea. And uh, I think 2018 will be a decisive year in seeing how that debate plays out in the administration. Obama administration looked at the issue of of military options and whether they're credible military options. Um, How did that debate come out in the Obama administration? Well, I think that the emphasis at the time from military leaders, intelligence officials, uh, and the whole national security team was on the consequences of taking preemptive action in North Korea, the, the likelihood that you would end up seeing a North Korean response that resulted in massive casualties in South Korea. And we have 28,000 troops in South mm-hmm. Korea. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are hundreds of thousands of U.S. citizens in South Korea. So this is uh, a cost highly for, dangerous, yeah. costly, and risky proposition to think about taking military action in North Korea. Now, the Obama administration, like the Bush administration, never took military force off the table, nor should you take these options off the table. There are circumstances where the the risk calculus is such that you'd have to contemplate it. The question is, are we in one of those moments now? And I have my doubts about whether uh, the administration um, has really thought through the consequences of uh, military action. And I'm worried that we may end up just talking ourselves in to a military campaign that uh, could end up not achieving its purposes, but at the same time bring with it enormous human cost. So you think that as they examine this question of, of, of military options, that perhaps they don't have an appreciation for the significant cost? Is it a... is is it in some way in your mind a different calculation that they have to consider, which is, you know, the, if the North Koreans are on the one yard line of getting this capability to hit the United States with a nuclear weapon, or is if they said last week that they have this capability, 
is it then a consideration of what are the costs of being vulnerable to this North Korean capability versus what are the costs associated with taking a preemptive military strike approach? Are they weighing the, 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 the costs or in your mind, is it really a function of they don't understand what the costs are for military options? I think that they are trying, they are uh, in the way that they have publicly laid out the case for the viability of military options, they are aggressively downplaying the costs. Yeah. And that concerns me. Yeah. It'd be one thing if they said, yes, the costs are going to be enormous, the escalation is going to be enormous, but frankly, we just can't live with it. So we're going to have to deal with a catastrophe in Northeast Asia because that's better than the alternative. That's not the argument. I don't necessarily agree with that, but that is not the argument that they are making. Mm-hmm. They're making an argument that says, um, we think there's a way to do this that comes in a more limited, with a more limited price tag in terms of uh, human life and, and overall dis- mm-hmm. strategic disruption in the region. But beyond that, I think the other challenge of what's happening right now is because of the increasing flirtation with the potential military option, there's not enough thought being given to what remaining window is there for diplomacy and what might that diplomacy look like. Mm -hmm. And what I would like to see is the administration saying, before we even get to the question of choosing between very unattractive options, is there any way uh, to put a lid on this now? And having served in the Obama administration, and obviously this is an issue you worked on very intimately as a part of the six-party talks, uh, you know, I'm mindful of not criticizing this administration for not making progress because successive administrations have not been able to stop North Korea from getting to the point uh, that it's arrived at now. But I basically believe that the window for diplomacy has not fully closed and that shifting to a mindset of, well, we're going to end up having to go to war here um, is premature, and I hope the administration is considering what its what its options are on the diplomatic side. As you look out to 2018, obviously North Korea is, is is will continue to be an urgent issue. What else do you see on the U.S.-China agenda? You know, in many in many ways, you could say the first year of the Trump administration, uh, the Chinese must be relieved because all of the things he promised he would do. Uh, to, to move to a much tougher approach with China never came to fruition. Um, how do you see 2018 in that regard? Well, North Korea is going to play loom large yeah. even on with respect to the economic issues because if we do end up escalating our way towards a military confrontation with North Korea, I think it will put a lot of these economic issues uh, on a side track. Sure. Um, yeah. But projecting out from 2017 to 2018, I think the table is set for a much more aggressive set of American actions and significantly more scratchiness in the U.S.-China economic relationship. And that's true for a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, after the administration gets through this tax reform process at the end of this year, there is not a clear next step in terms of their domestic legislative agenda. And so I think Trump will be uh, tempted to focus more abroad uh, to score some wins that he can bring home. Secondly, uh, with the midterms approaching, the issue of China uh, and the impact of China on American jobs uh, will become more political. Mm. And I think Trump is going to feel some pressure to deliver for his base and show that he, in fact, has gotten tough with the Chinese on certain issues. 
Third, you're seeing these uh, Section 301, Section 232 actions come to a head, and um, the Chinese will have to respond to those in some way. And so when you stack all of this up, I think 2018 is setting up to be a year in which the United States is likely to act more aggressively towards China on certain economic issues. And uh, my fear is that that will get us into a tit-for-tat scenario um, that could end up being quite negative for, for both sides. Uh, but that's all of this, I think, um, is something that both American policymakers and Chinese policymakers are going to have to factor in. Well, Jake, thank you very much for sharing with us your, your views and insights and for being with us uh, for the China and the World podcast and for the Distinguished Speaker Program. We hope you come back to Beijing soon. Thank Thanks. You. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. That's it for this edition of the Carnegie Tsinghua China and the World podcast. I encourage you to explore our site and see the work of all our scholars at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center. Thank you for listening. Be sure to tune in next time.